Welcome everybody to Election Connection. I'm your host, Ruth Newman. And today we're going to go into a little different direction because we're finding ourselves once again in the midst of a new surge in the coronavirus. According to the October the 23rd edition of the Courier Journal. So I thought it might be instructive if we had on our show today someone I know who was recently prey to COVID-19 along with her husband. So thank you, Kevin Marinas, for being on my show. Thank you for having me, Ruth. And I know you have just recently been through hell and back. So I just thought I'd let you take off and kind of recount how this happened to you okay. from the very first. Okay. I think as a predicate, I will say, you know, uh, because we are neighbors, uh, same neighborhood. I had been since the beginning of this pandemic, very, very careful to do exactly what the um, CDC and Governor Bashir indicated was the correct approach to try to minimize my risk. I am 69, my husband's 71. So we are just by our age in a high risk category. I also have an underlying lung condition called reactive airway disease or RAD. And so when I do get sick with any kind of a respiratory infection, I have asthma symptoms. And so a lot of shortness of breath and wheezing, that sort of thing. And so I end up on nebulizers, inhalers, all of that. So I try to be very careful on a regular basis. And when this pandemic began to take hold, I really, really ramped up being very, very careful and cautious. And my husband did as well. And my sister who lives in the city was also being quite careful. However, after several months of this kind of monk-like lifestyle, and I'm sure all of us who are careful have that sense of a very constrained lifestyle, my cousin died unexpectedly. This was in late August. And my sister and I both wanted to pay our respects at my cousin's wake. I was, though, very concerned about physically going into the funeral home because there was still, obviously, the COVID-19 out there. But the places had been reopened. You know, certainly funeral homes reopened to small gatherings, and they were allowing fewer than 25 people there. So my sister and I drove separately. We went in and participated in the wake. We did not hug any of our cousins, but we certainly expressed our condolences. And I also want to say we were both, my sister and I were both masked for the entire time. Were the other um, people there masked as well? Yes. yes. Everyone had masks. It was required by the okay. funeral home. We did not come into close contact with any of my cousins. And I actually got some grief from my cousins because several of them wanted to hug us, which is understandable in this scenario. But I I was yelling, not yelling at, I was saying quite strongly, as I said, hi, no hugs, no hugs. And they, you know, sour grapes kind of thing. But anyway, I did draw the line there. My cousins, they're all in their 
late 70s to 80s, and several of them are in poor health. So I, I just didn't want to take any chances. But unbeknownst to me, my sister was pre-symptomatic. And of everyone at the wake, she was the one with whom I stayed in closest contact. We were never hugging each other or anything, but we were definitely less than six feet apart. And we were together less than six feet apart for about an hour. And then we left after paying our respects, we left the funeral home and went to our separate cars and, you know, called it a night. And I came home and I found out later that my sister became symptomatic that evening, about 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock that night, which I understand from speaking to my doctor later, that was when she was at her most infectious. What, What were her symptoms? Her symptoms were that she had terrible GI tract problems. She had extreme nausea. She threw up several times. She had diarrhea. She could not keep any food down. She also immediately began to get a fever, though it was not terribly high. And she also began with just that awful feeling, very fatigued, achy all over. And she did not call me that night. She called me actually the following Monday and was very remorseful and told me that she had become sick over the weekend and that she had just had a COVID test and it had come back positive. And I was shocked and held my breath a bit, but I was obviously happy that she told me so that I could begin to move forward on what I do next. And to give a little background on how she got infected, she has a good friend who has lived in Dallas, Texas for about 45 years. And they have maintained contact since they were together in high school. It is really my sister's closest friend. And this friend and her husband, who have family still in Louisville, in fact, this friend's mother had a 92nd birthday about 10 days prior to my cousin's wake. And the friend and her husband came home from Texas Unbeknownst to them, they were pre-symptomatic COVID carriers. They had been exposed and were carrying the disease with them. And the family had a 92nd birthday party for her mother. And they invited my sister because my sister takes her friend's mother to doctor's appointments and, and grandchildren's recitals and things of that nature when her friend is not around. And so they consider my sister, a, you know, another daughter. So they were all masked. They were being very careful, again, because of her friend's mother's age. But nonetheless, they, they shared a meal and they took their masks off during the meal. And my sister was sitting next to her friend for that period of time. And apparently that was enough time with the talking and the laughing, et cetera, for some of the aerosolized virus to have infected my sister. And in hindsight, everyone is very grateful that her mother was not sitting as close to her as my sister was. And my sister's friend has a serious heart condition, actually had a heart attack about 15 years ago. And we were all very grateful that 
this friend and her husband had relatively mild cases. They were sick for about 10 days, had some of the respiratory issues, but nothing like what my sister and myself and my husband eventually dealt with. But be that as it may, my sister had gone to this function. She had not told me about it because I had sort of developed a reputation by that time of being the strict sister and uh, was you know, trying to tell all my younger siblings, be careful and all the stuff that one reads and hears about. And so she, I think, felt a little sheepish about letting me know. And so she, she did not tell me. So I was unaware that, that this get together had happened, but I don't know at the end of the day, it would have changed my mind about going to the wake. But again, back to that, my sister became symptomatic the evening of the wake. She was tested the following Monday. She tested positive. Uh, it was suggested to me by my doctor and actually her doctor. I was contacted uh, shortly thereafter by the city health department by contact tracer. And I went, as was suggested, I went for a COVID test on that Thursday. Went to the wake on the 28th. She became symptomatic on the 31st. Uh, I went for my COVID test on Thursday, September 3rd. I got the results actually the next day and I was negative. So my husband and I were quite happy about that. We did let our guards down at that point in time because as I have found out, there are oftentimes false negatives. And I did not receive the PCR test, which is the more invasive and the very accurate test that first time. I did a drive-through test. Mm -hmm. And just 48 hours later, that would have been over the Labor Day weekend, September 6th and 7th, I began to have symptoms myself. And on that Sunday, I noticed that I was just really feeling lousy. It was a general sense of fatigue. We had done some yard work the day before. I thought, well, maybe I've done too much yard work, et cetera. So that Sunday I said, I'm not doing a thing. I'm just going to rest. And then I began to cough and I was getting a little tight, a feeling, you know, tight feeling in my chest. And the next morning I checked my temperature and sure enough, I had a temperature. It wasn't horribly high, but it was, it was about a hundred degrees. And that was on Labor Day itself. So I didn't go anywhere. I called the next morning, Tuesday morning, got in to see another doctor in my doctor's practice. And she gave me the PCR test up the nostrils. And then I got my test quite quickly. It was the next, well, it was actually two days, uh, early morning, less than 48 hours later, and it was positive. So I will say by that time, this was the eighth, ninth, 10th, that first week of September, Every day was worse than the day before it. I fully expected to test positive because number one, I had been exposed. And number two, I was really beginning to feel lousy. And then about a week into it, I had the COVID crash, I think it's called. My symptoms became much worse, much more pronounced. My fatigue was all encompassing. I developed what my sister and I began to call mental fog. I've seen it described later as brain fog. And I had severe nausea as well. And then about the same time that I crashed, my husband, who was at the suggestion, obviously, 
of the health department, we were sleeping and living in separate parts of the house. But it was too late and about a week into it, just when I had the crash, he began to develop symptoms. So he was about a week behind me. And so both of us just deteriorated throughout, really throughout the next three weeks. We were in really bad shape. And my husband, unfortunately, lost his sense of taste and smell, which is, I understand, quite prevalent in COVID, but I never lost that, nor did my sister. He did not, however, have the respiratory symptoms that we had. I had the coughing, the sore throat, fevers. I was taking Tylenol four times a day. My sister, as I said, she had the respiratory issues as well, the fever, the extreme fatigue. And my husband also developed severe welts all over his chest. They were not, they were like the COVID toes, I guess, that I have read about in that it was a rash, but it was not red. It was not at the extremities. It was all over his chest and it was excruciating. He could not sleep. The itching was just, it was excruciating. And so we really, we had a hard time even figuring out what to eat, what to do. And it was the kindness of neighbors such as yourself and others who, you know, helped us get through it. But we actually lost the entire month of September. And again, as my husband said, we would, we would get out of our beds separately. I would stay in the living room area. He would go into the family room area and we would be there for eight, nine hours. And then we would go back to bed. That was all we could muster. It's hard to describe the overwhelming fatigue. And I, I had some issues with being short of breath. But the good thing for me, Ruth, was that the physician who saw me in the practice immediately prescribed a prednisone pack mm-hmm. and a Z pack. And so those I took right away. I have a hard time with steroids. They make me mentally crazy. I can't sleep. I'm just very jittery. But you know, I knew at the time I needed them for the anti-inflammatory aspect of it and to help my lungs. And I also started on the nebulizer treatments and the inhalers and things of that nature. But it was all we could do to open up a can of soup, heat it up, and try to consume it. Some of it, we couldn't finish. We couldn't change the beds. At one point, I was trying to get my husband to go outside a bit because that September weather was gorgeous. It was a beautiful fall. And we missed most of it because we could not physically get enough strength to get out of the, just to go out the back door and just sit in the sun. We have a back porch and it's maybe, I'm not exaggerating, maybe 20 steps to open the back door from the family room and there's a bench out there, but we just couldn't do it. Uh, And my husband being a week behind me, as I began to push myself a little bit to try to get some movement. He he couldn't. He could not do it. He physically could not get even to the door. And we are here with Kevin Marie Nuss, who, along with her husband, succumbed in early September to COVID-19 and is describing what she and her husband went through. So you uh, were saying that the two of you had different symptoms? Yes. And I'm wondering, did you find out at all from the doctor whether any of those symptoms were 
kind of typical of other COVID patients? I think certainly the respiratory symptoms, the issues with, you know, oxygenation levels. And for my husband, the loss of the senses of taste and smell, that's apparently very typical. Also, I think the overwhelming fatigue and the mental fog, the brain fog, were pretty typical. I had other symptoms. My sister and I both had the nausea, and I do know that that is not unheard of in COVID patients. We also had issues with our eyes. They were very irritated feeling, and I understand that also happens. But I think that loss of the senses of taste and smell for my husband, he still doesn't have those back. And this is, he's in his sixth week of recovery. He still does not have much of it. He has almost no sense of taste and no sense of smell. And, you know, there's a certain amount of mourning over that because, you know, that is obviously part of some of the pleasures of life is tasting food and, you know, smelling, you know, rain or flowers or whatever. He just doesn't have any of that. And he, he does enjoy, he's always enjoyed specialty beers. He, he has made his own beer in the past. He enjoys craft beer, tasting them, trying what other beer makers do, but he cannot taste any of them. He can't still to this day, he can taste Mm -hmm. none of that. So the, length of the recovery. And I will say, this sounds like a tale of woe, but you know, Ruth, we were the lucky ones. My sister was hospitalized for a little over two days. I don't know how she did it, but she drove herself to the nearest hospital at about three in the morning on Derby morning, the new Derby, September Derby this year. And they kept her in there largely because of her dehydration level. It was just so mm-hmm. bad. But, you know, they also closely monitored her, her oxygen levels. But my husband and I did not have to be hospitalized. There were three separate occasions, two for me and one for him, where we considered calling an ambulance. What helped me during that was honestly having the oximeter, which is the thing you get in a doctor's office, you put your your middle finger in or your first index finger in and they measured your oxygen levels. I had ironically just bought one about two weeks before I got sick just to have it around. And I used that all the time and would check my oxygen levels, especially when I was feeling short of breath or or having trouble getting a full breath. I wanted to make sure my oxygen levels weren't dropping in such Mm -hmm. a way that I needed to get to the hospital and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, get supplementary oxygen. It was really an invaluable tool. And Mm -hmm. my sister used it as well. And I I used it several times on my husband. My sister and I used to go to the same doctor and she retired just last year, but she had heard through the grapevine that my sister and I were both sick with COVID and she had gone to part-time and just retired, but she's the one who actually texted my sister and gave us this tip or hint of what to do and we did it religiously twice a day was to put the oximeter on and and walk quickly walk briskly around the house or go up and down steps a couple of times and then check to see how our oxygen level was doing during that brief exertion she said that she had had a couple of patients who had covid who would do fine for five or six days and they were using the oximeter and they did this same sort of test and they one of them 
did it on the seventh morning or whatever and she collapsed she couldn't get her breath and so they rushed her to the hospital but it was soon enough that where the supplemental oxygen really helped her out and so that's what we did it actually gave me some schedule to the day because i knew what i was doing late morning when i was doing late afternoon was checking that level Uh Um, but it was it was a terrible terrible period of time and after you know almost a month as we began i began to feel better first well my sister did first because she was about 12 days ahead of me we would have two or three hours where the veil would we felt like the this veil would open up and we would feel a little bit better and we thought oh my gosh there's some hope and then it would close and it would be really mentally very very difficult at that point because we were doing everything we thought we needed to do we're trying you know so hard and we knew it's a vicious disease and we you know knew it could get worse at any time and so it was really difficult to feel a little bit better and then to feel worse but that began to happen for longer periods of time you know and i would try to use my feeling a little bit better to encourage my husband you know and then he began to feel a little bit better physically there's a phrase out there fake it till you make it and that was kind of we were doing a little bit of that we were trying Mm -hmm. to push ourselves a little bit not too much but give ourselves a sense that there was the beginning of a return to life. Yeah, I can imagine that you must have had so many low points during that time. What was it like mentally? Did you have periods of depression? Yes, yes. And hopelessness? And anxiety, terrible anxiety for me, which I think, you know, that's something I deal with with the prednisone anyway. But saying that even after that was over, it was the sense of, gosh, we're just not getting any better. Are we going to get better? And am I ever going to be able to breathe again? And those negative thoughts in my head, and then I would begin to feel tight chested. And that's where I would use the oximeter oftentimes going, wait a minute, you know, are you making yourself worse off? You know, let's calm down, take a deep breath. I tried meditation, some relaxation breathing and things of that nature. And that would help, that would help. But um, there were also times of real depression. I would cry because I was just so sick of it. And there were times where I was going, why me? I've been so careful. And yet I know really and truly that it could have been so much worse. And so I'm, I'm grateful for that fact. And honestly, Ruth, I'm grateful that I try to live a fairly healthy life. You know, I don't smoke. Um, I don't drink anymore. I exercise. I try to get out and walk. I mean, I'm not a marathon runner, but before COVID, I would go to the gym regularly, trying to get my sleep, et cetera. All those sort of fundamental things one does to try to stay healthy. And I, I do think some of that helped because despite any, you know, issues I have with my lungs, which is, I think, from my my sister and myself, I think it's genetic as much as anything. Both of my parents had trouble. And my dad quit smoking decades before he died. My mother never smoked. And so we were never really around smoking. And my sister and I never, never smoked cigarettes at all. And yet we have these issues. Now, how much of that is Ohio Valley? I don't know. But saying all that, 
you know, despite having that, we were able to get through it without extraordinary measures and some of these more horrific things one sees in, going on in hospitals. So, you know, we are grateful for that. I worry sometimes about being a long hauler, COVID long hauler, just from the standpoint of actually my husband's symptoms lingering and mine lingering a bit. But, you know, as far as I can tell, there's nothing severe like some of these other people out there that I, I do feel so sorry for. But living in the day, I feel pretty good about the fact that we've been able to get through the worst of it for sure. That's good. I just was wondering, the nature of this disease is that, you know, you have to be alone. You have to be isolated. Nobody can come visit you. And that must have also had a deep effect on you. I'm just wondering, in retrospect, do you think there's anything while you were in the middle of this that anyone could have done just to lift your spirits a bit? You said meditation and, mm -hmm. you know, the oximeter and, and that, but just contact with other people. Do you have any suggestions? I do think that, honestly, my sister and I talked about for a period of time, we really struggled to have conversations over the phone because our brains were just not working right. They just were so addled and trying to put a coherent sentence together was really difficult. And that sounds odd, I know, but... No, not to me, it doesn't. <laughs> well, it just was, it was terrible. But what we could do and what we did do, because we could take our time doing it, we ended up texting neighbors, friends, family members on a regular basis. And that was really helpful because I could, I could get the text and see that someone cared and was so, almost every person said, you're the last person I would have thought would get sick because you were so careful. Um, <laughs> I thought you got sick of that. I kind of laugh though, because it's like, yeah, but then I sort of felt like, well, I'm the example. I let my guard down. Shame on me. But saying all that, people were supportive. Can I do anything? How can I help? And that made me feel cared about. And I knew that, you know, it made me, especially when I had trouble sleeping at night and, and did feel so isolated, or even in the middle of the day, just sitting there, you know, not able to read because I couldn't recall anything just knowing that there were people that did care about me and wanted to get updated to get that kind of communication it was so mm -hmm. nice and i have to be honest the city of louisville's contact tracers were amazing i mean 90 percent of them were they were really uh caring people they checked on me they all asked if they could send did we need food? Did we need supplies? If we needed help getting our medication? They were really, they were extended interviews, but they were really, I know several of them went off script just to be supportive. And I have to give them a lot of credit because I know they were doing that for statistical and uh, county health reasons, city health reasons, but it was just that interaction. It was helpful. And it was nice to know if it really got bad that I could call them and say, hey, you know, I, I do need help getting my medication or something. But we have a good circle of support and everybody was helpful and you among them. And it was just really amazing. That was amazing. But again, there were some very dark moments. 
Did you ever go back after all of this and get tested again? I was told by the health department not to get a COVID test for a couple months because I will probably test positive still because I have viral remnants in my body. And I will tell you, I do still have an issue in warmer weather. I spike a low-grade fever. And I don't know what that's all about. It's 99.2, 99.3. I did that for three weeks after I was released from quarantine. You know, when it was warmer weather, I was still spiking fevers. And so actually that happened to me yesterday because it was warmer. And I think it's just so weird that that's still going on. Mm-hmm. And I've asked the doctor about it. I've asked a couple of them and they don't really have an answer, but there are these lingering issues with this disease that there aren't answers to as of yet, because it's so new. None of the researchers, doctors can provide answers to a lot of these questions. Right. Um, so right. that's, to me, that's the scary part that um, about it is, Are there things going on in my body that, you know, I'll find out in later scans or, you know, tests that are still going on or my husband or my sister, or Mm -hmm. will these spiking fevers continue for a year, for five years? You know, will my husband get his sense of taste or sense of smell back? I mean, that's, that's the kind of stuff. It's a pre-existing condition. So And that's another thing they talked about in the debate, pre-existing condition. It is. And my husband and I are old enough for Medicare. And so I worry less about being denied health insurance coverage with Medicare because of the pre-existing condition of COVID. But there are a lot of people out there with commercial insurance that if push comes to shove, if the ACA goes down, God forbid, and commercial insurers say, well, you've got lingering issues. It's a pre-existing condition. We're not going to cover you. That would be terrifying. Just to remind you, you're listening to Election Connection with me, your host, Ruth Newman, on WFMP 106.5 FM, where we exchange different attitudes, ideas, experiences, testimonials, revelations, and inspirations with each other. And you are invited to participate in this ever-widening circle of experimentation. Just visit our website at www.forwardradio.org and click on the Participate tab. You can also help ensure the continuation of Grassroots Radio in the public's interest by donating where shown at that same website, forwardradio.org. Now, today's guest, Kevin Marie Nuss, recently went through the most miserable, excruciating, and terrifying experience after having been infected with COVID-19 along with her husband. And she is here to share what she and her husband went through with this disease and to some extent are still going through and also to relate some lessons learned. So let's continue on with the conversation. And I, I don't wish this on anyone. I have to say that it's, it's a really vicious disease. And yet at the debate on Thursday, Trump 
was saying that the virus was going away and it's right. not true. It is so not true. It is the opposite. And I don't even know what to think. I do feel very strongly about it, that he is, he is so wrong. And mm -hmm. I don't understand how someone, well, I know he got the virus and I think he was quite ill, much more ill than has been brought out. But he also had the best medical care that 99% of us will never get because he did have early interventions. He had experimental treatments and he, yeah. he got what I wish I had. I wish I'd been able to get some remdesivir early on or my husband or my sister or some convalescent plasma. I guess that is not the panacea that it was hoped to be, but the dexamethasone steroid or whatever, you know, anything that would help. I do think my early intervention, while it was not at his level, I do think getting on the steroids early and that the Z-Pack did help me. But it was still a very, very long road. And I think if the president had been sicker longer, I mean, really sick, you know, I'm not talking necessarily on a ventilator, but I mean, really, really sick as my husband, my sister and I were, I guess he could because of who he is. But it would seem to me to be almost impossible for him physically to get up and go to these super spreader rallies night after night. I don't know that he'd be able to get out of bed because we certainly couldn't. But again, we did not have the medical treatments that he had. So, And you didn't receive early intervention like President Trump because the first test you had came out negative. Isn't that right? As I mentioned, I tested negative on that Thursday, I think it was September 3rd before Labor Day weekend. And that was six days after my sister began to show symptoms. And I was told to wait to get my test until five to seven days. So I was in that time frame where theoretically I would have gotten a positive result, but I did not. And so I did not start showing symptoms until 10 days after I was exposed. And so I am one of those people who were you know, later in that two-week cycle that began to show symptoms. And again, unfortunately for my husband, we had let down our guard when I tested negative because I wrongly thought I was out of the woods. And so we, you know, we watched TV together, we had dinner together, that sort of thing. And I'm sure that's where he got sick. Honestly, what scares me, I do not want to get this again. I don't want my husband to get this again, nor my sister, nor anyone I know. And I went to see my primary care physician a couple of weeks ago, after I was feeling better, I'd been released from quarantine by the city a uh, week before that. And I went to see her and, and she just kept saying to me, you are not immune. You are not immune. You are not immune. And I don't know if she thought I might be trying to believe what President Trump was saying, but I did not. I knew that this did not make me immune. I know I did have antibodies shortly after I was sick, but I don't know that I still have them. I don't know at what level I have them. And so I am right back to being super careful because I do not want to get near this disease again. So what you're saying and what everybody should know is that after they've recovered from this disease, they still have to keep their guard up. They can't walk around as if they're invincible. Is that right? Absolutely. That's what I've been told. And I I had to see a couple other doctors in the midst of all this. Every one of them said that to me. You can get this again. And I did read that there aren't many people who are showing up as getting infected a second time. But several of them were worse 
got more sick the second time around than the first. And that's what really scares me. People need to keep their guard up. Um, they need to watch out for each other. Um, it's just, it's just a really, I keep saying this, but it's such a vicious disease. It's just, and it's up and down one day better, one day worse. I do want to say that I will be first in line to get the vaccine once Dr. Fauci says it's safe. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. I'm not uh -huh. listening to any political hack tell me it's okay. But once Dr. Fauci says this vaccine is okay, I'm there. I am there. I don't mind having a sore arm or whatever, a few slight symptoms if I don't have to get this again. At this point, I'm going to break in and try bringing us up to speed a little on the actual state of our vaccine monitoring capabilities as they now stand. So I'm just going to read some extracts from a New York Times article entitled, the Trump administration shut a vaccine safety office last year. What's the plan now? And it was published on October the 23rd. So it states, as the first coronavirus vaccines arrive in the coming year, government researchers will face a monumental challenge monitoring the health of hundreds of millions of Americans to ensure the vaccines don't cause harm. For now, Operation Warp Speed, created by the Trump administration to spearhead development of coronavirus vaccines and treatments, is focused on getting vaccines through clinical trials in record time and manufacturing them quickly. The next job will be to monitor the safety of vaccines once they're in widespread use. But the administration last year quietly disbanded the office with the expertise for exactly this job. According to Daniel Salmon, who served as the director of vaccine safety in that office from 2007 to 2012, overseeing coordination during the H1N1 flu pandemic in 2000, this is what he said, we're behind the eight ball. We don't even know who's in charge. Here is what... Dr. Jesse Goodman, the FDA's chief scientist during the H1N1 pandemic, had to say, and I quote, We got all these different agencies together. We created governance around it. We created a regular monitoring plan as well as a public communication plan. I think that something very much like that is even more needed now. And you know, we haven't yet seen that emerge. Also, Dr. Nicole Lurie, who was Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response at Health and Human Services during the 2009 pandemic, said that the loss of the Vaccine Safety Office by the Trump administration was especially costly once the coronavirus pandemic hit, and I'm quoting her, the coordinated leadership for stuff like this would likely come from the National Vaccine Program Office which, of course, the Trump administration dismantled. Dr. Lurie says, quote, there is no sort of active coordination to bring all the information together. You know, I've got some statistics that I just saw in today's paper, today being October the 23rd. We have now 
over 92,000 people in Kentucky who have been infected. We have 1,380 people in Kentucky who have died. Wow. The hospitals have spiked in hospitalizations. We went from 533 patients to 794 currently being hospitalized statewide. We jumped from 53 to 68 patients at Baptist East. This was within a month. So wow. within a month's time, we have spiked in our hospitalizations at all of our hospitals. Jefferson County has now jumped to a state of red alert, yeah. signifying uncontrolled infection. In the United States altogether, we have 41,000 people who are now hospitalized across the country and an average of 777 virus-related deaths were reported over just the last seven days. 777 deaths over the last seven days. Eight states set single-day records in new cases of COVID as of Thursday, October the 22nd. And you know what you know what really bugs me about that, Ruth, is so much of that could be mitigated or avoided completely if people would just wear masks, right. wash their hands, and social right. distance. Exactly. I don't know, I don't remember the governor that said this, but I agree, wear your damn mask. Exactly. And you know, it wasn't so long, it was just a few days ago, I was at Trader Joe's in their wine shop. And I got to the register and the woman behind the register was not wearing a mask. And I asked her, I said, why aren't you wearing a mask? And she just said, I can't wear a mask, ma'am. I can't wear a mask. So I had to accept that she was the only person at the cash register. But now in retrospect, I'm thinking I should have gone to the manager because it's one thing for her not to be able to wear a mask. It's another thing, the manager, to put her up at the cash register where she's less than six feet. She's less than two feet away from customers buying wine. All those interactions, maskless, while there is still some protection on the customer standpoint by wearing a mask, it's not complete. And no. as I look the hard way with my sister, masks are not the answer. There is also the issue of social distancing. And I just think we were too close together. I even had a, I had bought it last year for, because I do have allergies and I bought it a pack from overseas of what I found out later were KN95 masks, okay? The big hoo-ha, not quite the N95, but close to it. The big hoo-ha mask, except this group of masks I got 10, I think. So a pack of 10. They were valved. They had that valve. Uh -huh. And I have since seen multiple studies say certainly you don't provide protection for other people, but they also do not provide as much protection for the wearer. That was the one I was wearing with my sister when she was pre-symptomatic and at her most infectious. So this combination of masks and social distancing and washing your hands and that sort of thing and I know, I know it's horrible to be isolated, you know, for this long a period of time and, and especially for the children and the lack of school interactions and sports interactions and just being with their buddies and Halloween and all of that. But gosh, 
no one wants this virus. I mean, yes, somebody might get lucky and get a mild case or, or even an asymptomatic case, but there are people out there that are going to get extremely ill that an asymptomatic person might come in contact with. And it's right. it's just not worth it. Really, at the end of the day, it's a short-term encumbrance for long-term survival. I mean, it really right. is survival. And now that we're getting into late October, we're entering mm -hmm. the period of holidays and families getting together. I don't know what's going to happen for Halloween. <laughs> I don't know if I need to have candy. I'm certainly not going to open my door. We are not, for the first time in a long time, my husband and I are not going to do Halloween. We're just going to keep the light off and wait till next year. I, I love, well, he does too. We both love seeing the kids in costume. But, you know, the suggestion now is putting the individual candy bags out on a platter, out six feet away, whatever, a platter on, on a table on your front porch or what have you, and then going back behind your storm door and watching the kids come up. But I'm I'm just so sensitive to any potential spread. I just, I'm not going to do that this year. And I feel badly for the kids, but I mean, I do understand why these constraints are in place. This is winter. This is inside. This is holidays. And I've asked my sister about her friend uh, in Texas, you know, what are they going to do? And they're trying to figure it out because they do want to come home. The 92-year-old mom lives alone, but they're acutely aware of the spread they created in Louisville, Kentucky. And so I don't think they're going to come for the holidays this year because you just can't take that chance. Yeah. And I know, I think the front page article in the Courier Journal was titled Pandemic Fatigue. What do you do during pandemic fatigue? Because it's true, yeah. we're all experiencing it it's yeah. going on for so long. I know. And I, again, I think this could have been handled so much better. And I look at these countries. Now, I know Europe is experiencing a terrible resurgence, but I look at you know, New Zealand, for example, or Australia mm -hmm. and East Asia and how well they're doing. Uh -huh. And I think, what did they say at New Zealand? Their prime minister said something about go early and go hard. But I mean, really shut it down, isolate at the first chance you get and then really mandate masks and other measures. And we just didn't do it here. And I think this is the result. You know, and I think the thing that angers me so much is, well, I don't think I know. The thing that angers me so much in all of this, and again, my husband and I, my sister were very lucky, but there was still a lot of suffering. And there is so much more suffering going on in this country. The mourning of people's loved ones, the loss of loved ones that could have been avoided. I mean, yeah. 150, 200,000, they said deaths could have been avoided if we had just had a national mask mandate and these other measures. I mean, yeah. gosh, to me, these people's lives seem worth it. So it's a tragedy. tragedy. No national coordinated system None. to get personal protective equipment out to the most needy places yes. in the States. There was nothing. Contact tracing. I wanted to ask you, and I forgot to, you were in the depths of your symptoms when they called you and asked you about your contacts. I'm just wondering how that experience 
went. The ironic thing about the contact tracer was I have been so careful that when I went back over that period of time where I would have been infectious, I had gone to Kroger one time before I showed symptoms. And I'm so careful at the grocery store. I mean, I practically, I call it my bob and weave, but I <laughs> just run from people. And a woman was in there with three young boys and they were old enough to be masked, but none of them had masks. And I took off away from them. And so I only had a very, very minimal interaction with them. That was my only other contact. And the tracer even said, that's not what we worry about. So for me, it kind of ended with my husband, the contact tracing. And you know, the interesting thing is though, Ruth, they were so busy you know, when my husband showed symptoms, he was never tested because number one, I was in quarantine, could not drive him. Number two, I mean, I physically couldn't pull that off. It would have been dangerous for me to be out on the roadways. But number three, he was so sick, I would have never been able to get him into the car. And so the, the contact tracers called him a few times, but they didn't maintain regular contact with him as they did with me, because I was in the system through my physician's office, through the mm -hmm. PCR test out of my physician's office. And when I was feeling better and talking to them, and they, they did not release me as quickly as they do some people because I was spiking these fevers. But when they did release me finally, she said, we just could not keep up with your husband because the numbers are growing. And of course it was before this spike we're in the middle of right now. She said, we just, we can't keep up with the numbers to do the contact tracing effectively. I see why they said that because it's a long survey. It's an intense interaction. And, you know, the quickest I ever got through it was maybe 18 minutes. It's usually a 20 to 25 minute interactions because they're asking you how you're feeling or getting detailed answers or asking you, do you have this symptom? At what level? What's your worst symptom? Is there improvement? Is it worsening? Etc. And I had this weird, odd symptom where my feet would feel like they were on fire and it would come out of nowhere. It felt like someone put a blowtorch to the bottom of my feet. I would have to take my shoes off, my socks off, and I would just kind of try to air them out, if you will. You know, they were writing down all these odd symptoms. So the contact tracing is so intense and time consuming. <laughs> I don't see when you have this uncontrolled spread as we have now here in the city, I don't see how they can keep up. I feel so bad for them because I just don't see, they could work 24 hours a day and I don't think they could keep up with it. Was it done on the telephone? Is that yes, how they did it? It was a telephone, yes, uh -huh. yes. And it was a handoff from the doctor's office. They told me that they had PCR tests that sent it and gotten the result and that sort of thing. You know, I was fine with it. I know the governor's been on a few times saying people have hung up on them. You know, they won't answer the phone. I was perfectly willing because I felt like it helped it helps the city really it was I almost felt like my civic duty mentally cognitively it was difficult for me at times you know yeah. to formulate answers but I mean I was I was really impressed with that crew is there anything you think that you learned from this experience or that might have been good from this experience I do I still have a lot of gratitude for surviving it because you cannot miss the news and see these horrific images of these hospitals and these, these heroic hospital workers and first responders. I, I tip my hat to them. And you know, Ruth, I would say as a quick aside, these young people who die of COVID, I'm sure, you know, when they didn't have adequate PPE, 
the viral load just exceeded. They were going from room to room with these horrifically sick people. And I'm sure even their young bodies, they were overwhelmed by the viral load of COVID. And it, it just seems so tragic to me. But yeah. I do have a lot of gratitude that all three of us are okay. I am recommitted to my being very, very careful. I just encourage everybody else to please, please listen to the experts and, and wear your mask and social distance and all of that stuff because really and truly it's vicious and I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. It's a vicious disease and people need to be careful. Well, thank you so much, Kevin Marie. Thank you. You're on my show and, and just telling us the kinds of experiences that you went through. My heart goes out to you. Well, and thank you. And I, again, I didn't mean to do tale of woe for 45 minutes or whatever, but I just wanted to sort of go through our experiences, my husband and mine and my sister, just uh -huh. to really honestly let people know how this is a true disease. It's not something to make light of. I've had the flu, Ruth. It's a hundred times worse than the flu. And so please, I just want people to understand we're relatively healthy. Yes, we're in the high risk age group, but really we are. And it took us all down for a month. So yeah. please, everybody, yeah. please be careful. Thank you. Thank Those you. Are very wise words. That was Kevin Marie Nuss, who, along with her husband, was infected with COVID-19 in early September and suffered through several weeks of agonizing debilitation and is just now returning to some modicum of normalcy. I hope her story will be a wake-up call for those out there who might be getting impatient or weary, not keeping up their guard. Please, everybody, let's get the upper hand over this devastating disease by wearing our masks whenever in public, by keeping a minimum of six feet apart, and by washing our hands frequently. Stay well, everyone, and stay safe. And don't forget to vote. We're down to the wire, folks. And if you haven't already, do cast your ballot. Now, there are four early voting locations open Monday through Saturday, 8.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. They are the Kentucky Exposition Center, the KFC Yum Center, the Kentucky Center for African American Heritage, and the Louisville Marriott East. You can either go in person and fill out a ballot, be sure to wear a mask, and bring a pen with black ink or pencil. Or you can put your already filled in and signed ballot into the drop box also at these same four locations. Now, if you're still waiting to receive your requested absentee ballot in the mail, you can check the status by going to GoVoteKY.com. If you haven't received your absentee ballot by October the 28th, you can vote in person Remember, you have until the day of the election, Tuesday, November 3rd. And if you happen to experience a problem voting, you can call the Election Protection Hotline at 1-866-OUR-VOTE. That's O-U-R-V-O-T-E or 1-866-687-8673. So that's 1-866-OUR-VOTE, 
1-866-687-8683. That's it for this edition of Election Connection. Be sure to keep us on your radio dial at 106.5 FM. Live stream us at forwardradio.org and explore our archived podcasts by clicking on the Programs tab. Bye for now.